hey, you, you don't know how good it's been to be able to go away for four Sundays and leave Jimmy in the pulpit for those four Sundays knowing that he's going to do a good, solid job. And so um, uh, I got to listen online to most of um, his teaching and I thought he did a really, really good job. He's got gifts, that kid. Um, and uh, it does take it out of you preaching every week though. And so this morning he's in bed. But um, be praying for him. He's a little unwell. So, uh, and please be, please be um, thanking him as well. That was a big thing to take on um, at the very beginning of his ministry life here at this church to take four Sundays in a row is a big deal. So I just want to thank him publicly in front of you. Um, so we've got to chapter six in the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you've been around for a while, you'll know that it's a pretty depressing book. Um, and, uh, but it is a very honest book. Herman Melville, who wrote Moby, Moby Dick, called it the truest book ever written. And he said that because of the, just the sheer honesty of Solomon as he sat, sat down to write uh, these pages. He was not holding anything back from the reality of his experience. And so we've seen over these weeks he is wrestling with the reality of life under the sun. That's the phrase he repeats more often than any other in this book. 35 times in the book he'll talk about life under the sun. 25 times he'll refer to it as vanity or meaninglessness. Seven times he'll say it's life is like just chasing after the wind. And so Solomon's dealing with this experience that he's had as, as the most wealthy man of his generation, as the king of a nation, as someone with a thousand uh, partners, 300 wives, 700 concubines, as someone who seemingly has everything that the world could offer, and yet he deals with this just irrepressible sense of emptiness, hollowness. That's what vanity means. It's the shallowness of things. That's what he's dealing with. And so a book like that's going to be fairly dark, And in fact, I think if you look at your life under the sun, that is your life, your material life, the life that uh, the secularist, the materialist, the humanist says, all that this is all there is, right? Just the here and now, the flesh and uh, the bone, that life, if you take it in isolation, is depressing. It's absolutely depressing, and it can be most depressing for the man or the woman who has everything they want because they get to the end of that search, that, that thirst, that, that hunger for everything and find that they're still hungry, and that's what Solomon's experiencing now. And this, in this chapter, in chapter 6, it's a short chapter, but he's going to mention those three things, the, 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 uh, the, the vanity of life under the sun, the meaninglessness of life, and the chasing after the wind. He's going to mention that all, all three of those things in this one chapter. It's pretty bleak. It's pretty bleak. But the great thing about Ecclesiastes, and hopefully you've picked up on this so far, is that Ecclesiastes isn't the whole story. It's one book out of 66 books in the Bible, and it's only one story from one man's perspective who is coming to terms with life under the sun. The the great hope that we have as Christians, the great hope that we have in the gospel, and we'll get to this, is that there is reality beyond the sun. Amen? There is reality beyond the sun. There is reality beyond this flesh and blood life. 
That's where our hope lies. And it's actually that reality beyond the sun that gives meaning to this life so that we can be hopeful about a life that's to come and we can enjoy the good gifts that God gives us in this life in their right place. We'll get to all of that in a minute, but I want to start by telling you a little story. I think it relates to Solomon's experience because Solomon is is a man who was raised by his father David to be a a God-fearing Hebrew man. He was a, a man who knew God. He was a man who knew God's word. He was a man who worshipped God. And yet you can see through the trajectory of his life, you read in the book of 1 Kings, that, he, that uh, things don't go so well in the end for Solomon. That because of these riches, because of these women, because of these things that he has, he is led further and further away from God to the point of this kind of despair. And I, my, my kind of testimony is a little similar to that. I'll, t- I'll tell you a little bit about me. I grew up uh, in the home of this man over here, David Smith, and um, grew up with an older brother, a younger brother, and a younger sister. Um, our younger sister was adopted from South Korea when she was five months old. A few months later, my mum died of cancer, and so we had three young boys and an infant uh, under the, the one roof with dad, and that was life growing up. The great thing about life growing up in our house was that we had a godly man who was leading us, and we had a good church to be a part of. And so we were plugged into that community, and we were well cared for and loved by them. What I experienced, though, was uh, a real um, uh, love for the church minus any love for Jesus. Kind of normally the other way around, right? People are okay with Jesus. He seems to be a good guy. The church is a, they're a bunch of jerks. But for me growing up, my church was great. There was a big youth group. There was lots of people there who thought I was cool. And so I could walk in and high-five everyone. And I knew all of, the, all of the ins and outs of how to be in church and have everyone think that you're a good person. And so I did that thing for a while up until um, I finished high school. And then when I finished high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had the privilege of going to a very um, good school, um, uh, Kerry Grammar in Kew, that that set me up uh, in every way for um, uh, uh, a successful life. Um, The university first, like everyone else at school, and then on to make lots of money. Um, and, 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 And I got to the end of my high school career not knowing what I wanted to do. I did know that I didn't want to go to university and then defer university and try a different course and then defer that and try like all my friends did, right? And so I decided I was just going to leave university off and travel. And so I decided that um, the best way to travel if you don't have any money is to get someone else to pay for you to travel. And I got got that to happen by going to the US and working in the US. And so I decided to go and um, be a counsellor at a a camp counsellor at a a camp um, uh, in Pennsylvania, it's um, north of Pittsburgh, uh, was the place where I was um, working. And uh, I was about to say ministering, but I didn't know that they had a ministry because I thought I was going to work for the Salvation Army, which I was, but I didn't know that they were Christians. I didn't know that they were a church denomination. I just thought they shook tins, right, and collected money at the footy. And so it turned out when I got there, I found out they were Christians, and they found out that I wasn't, all right? And this came all together in a matter of hours because they picked me up 
from the airport in a, one of these big pickup trucks, and, um, and I'd never seen something so massive before, and so the guy picked me up and I said, man, what the hell is this? And he was like, what did you just say? And I was a little bit hungover because it was free beer on the Qantas flight, right? And, um, and I just put a cigarette out and he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what, what is going on? The tradition that they were part of, real like blood and thunder, uh, sorry, blood and fire salvationists, there was, there was no cussing in, in their church, right? And by that I mean no damn, no hell, no friggin', all right? None of that language that features in most of my sermons, all right? None of that. There was definitely no drinking, definitely no smoking. Um, and so it was, very, it was a very straight down the line Salvation Army church. We are here as the army of God with army discipline, <laughs> um, and so there was obviously a mix-up. I got put into the, the uh, office in the first week I was there. I was told that I was fired. They were going to look for a camp for me. They'd found a Jewish camp, so I don't know how I would have gone over there. Um, all kinds of inappropriate jokes come to mind. But, um, and so it was me and another Australian guy. There was actually 12 nations of people represented on the staff. It was me and one other Aussie guy. We were both getting fired because we were both not fit for that camp, that's for sure. And so the first Aussie guy, he just kind of fell on his sword and said, I'm out of here, I don't want to be here anyway if I can't smoke and drink and swear. And me though, in the meeting that I was having with the captain and the, this, this other leader, um, I just got broken, like broken. Um, for, for reasons still unclear to me, I just broke down and cried and I just said, um, I don't, maybe I don't fit in here, maybe I'm not on the same page as you guys when it comes to Jesus, but I really think he wants me to be here. And, the, and everything in the meeting changed at that point. They said they were still going to fire me and there wasn't much they could do about it, the decision had been made, but something changed. Um, and then that, that night when we were in a, uh, had a worship service, I just remember hearing people sing and watching people worship from 12 different nations around the world and just, just bawling. And, and that evening they reinstated me on the staff and just said, well, they didn't reinstate me, they said, we'll give you a probation. See how you go. And from that point for the next two weeks, I just, I got slammed. Slammed. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Job, but it was a little bit like that without the boils. All right? it, was, it was bad. So one of my best friends at the time was my grandfather. Um, he was a, an amazing man. And that, that day after that happened, he died. I got the call from Dad. Granddad's dead. And I was like, I, I just got here. But I need, to go, I need to go home. But I just got here. And then the next day, I was on the phone to the girl that I was seeing at the time who I was just massively enmeshed with in really unhealthy ways. And uh, she let me know that, you know, now that there'd been two days of separation, that that, that was going to be permanent from that time on. And in fact, she'd already kind of got another boyfriend anyway. So that, that kind of cheered me up as I contemplated missing Grandad's funeral. And then a few days later, as I lay in my bed in the middle of the day, just wanting to end it all, 
I'd excused myself from the training day we'd had. I was lying in bed and suddenly just felt sick, like really sick. And, and, and it seemed like in a matter of minutes, I was just pouring sweat. Sweat was pouring off my body. And within, I don't know how long it was, but I was just, I was, I was completely incoherent. I was hallucinating, I was seeing Satan in the room with me, I was hearing accusatory voices, I was writhing around on the floor when my co-counselor, the guy that worked with me in, in our cabin, walked in the door and just grabbed me, put me on the back of a golf cart and drove me across the, the campsite to a car, they took me to the hospital, they didn't know what was going on, they said I was within a degree or two of dying, uh, temperature-wise, um, and for the next... 48 hours, they just conducted every kind of test on me, including x-rays for some reason. I'm not sure why that was. It was a little country hospital. Um, and, and then in the end, they said, we don't know what's going on. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong with him, apart from the obvious nearly dying bit. And so they sent me back to the camp, and I stayed in the infirmary, the, the, the uh, what do we call it, sick bay. And they had a nurse there who just all through the night and through the day would come and try and help me out give me medicine and wipe the sweat off my face. And then one day this guy called Doug came in. He was this massive footballer, farm boy. And uh, he was the, this kind of walking contradiction because he just looked enormous, right? Like some of these Samoan guys that we have at our church, they're pretty small compared to this guy, right? And so um, he came in just like a bull and he just knelt down next to me, and I'd seen him worshipping on that night where I was bawling, and I saw him in tears as well, on his knees, up the front of the church, just like besotted with God, absolutely overwhelmed and in awe of God, this massive, big, hulking guy. And he just came in and sat down next to me and said, I'm going to pray, and he put his hands on me and prayed, and I was healed. I don't know what else to say apart from the fact that I was healed. And I got up and walked out that day and we got back to work. And by this stage, I'd been kind of chastened enough that I was ready to start doing what they wanted me to do at this place. Something was going on here that I needed to be a part of. For the next month, we had four separate groups of kids come in from inner city Pittsburgh. It is uh, the, one of the worst places to live on earth. Most of them lived literally in cardboard boxes. I mean, it was real poverty stuff. The most likely cause of death for anyone, 18 to 30, is homicide. None of them had dads. All of their mums were on drugs. Most of them were on drugs. They all had knives. Some of them had guns. Um, and these were 11 and 12-year-olds. Most of them were sexually active. Some had been sexually abused. So we had all of these black kids come in from the, from the ghettos. And four different groups of kid, <coughs> kids... <coughs> All of them just hardened by life. You can imagine, just hard, hard kids. Every single group of them from different parts of the city ended up in the same posture at one point during their week's stay with us. And that posture was all of them gathered in the corner crying and screaming because every group of them, different group of them over that month had seen the same thing in the room with them. So we had these big cabins we were in the middle, the counsellors, the staff, two separate wings of, group, uh, of guys, um, 11 and 12-year-old guys, and all of them throughout their stay 
said they'd seen the same thing. These shadowy figures in the room with them, hearing noises, stuff, weird stuff going on. It was freaking them out. And it was freaking, freaking me out. There was stuff turning on that wasn't plugged in. One kid's bag caught on fire, uh, except it wasn't burning. It was like Moses and the, and the bush. Um, the, just weird stuff was happening, weird things. And so I would just lie in bed at night with my Bible open. I had this Bible that I was given when I was 13, when I was confirmed. <laughs> I don't know what I was confirming, but I hadn't opened it since. And I put it on the side of my bed and just sort of wanted it to go out and get the things that were there, right? Like, do the Bible do something? I didn't have any onions to... No, what is it? Garlic. And so that went on for a month, and there were people... There was a basement under our um, cabin, and there were people through the night down there just praying about this thing that was going on. And there was fresh groups of kids seeing this stuff and freaking out, and I was just completely freaked out. The guy who was with me was a hardcore salvationist. He just couldn't care less. Right? He slept so well, he would just talk to Satan and tell him to <laughs> go to hell. Um, but I was, I, was, I was in pieces. And by the end of that time, by the end of that month, I had every, it seemed to me, every crutch I had just kicked out from underneath me. My, my granddad dying and my girlfriend leaving and this experience of having all of my health just drained out of me, and now this constant fear. I didn't sleep with the light off for a year after that. It was just terrified me. And, and, and on one night during that time, during that month, we did this exercise. One of the guys who led the camp did this exercise with the staff. So there's a big staff from all over the world, and he got us all to line up. Imagine if we all lined up here, at the end of the building, and then he started asking questions, and if the answer was yes, we had to take a step forward. And it was this exercise he was doing to show us the, the, the kind of disparity between us and the staff when it came to wealth and affluence and education. And, and just about every question he asked, I took a step forward, step forward, step forward. And by the end of it, I was standing right in front of him who was asking the questions. And there were people who hadn't even stepped yet. I remember one guy, this guy called Teppo. He was from Nigeria. And he was standing without having taken a single step. And he had this huge smile on his face, like completely black, white teeth just beaming, like he couldn't care less. And there was me standing up the front at the head of the whole staff, the most blessed, the most affluent, the most educated, the most, right, completely and utterly depressed and distraught. I felt like I had nothing left to live for, and I was terrified every waking moment of what was going on. And none of it made sense of all that I'd been taught my whole life. The culture around me had taught me from day one that to have affluence, to have education, to have technology, to have, to have, to have, to have is the path to happiness, fulfillment, and the good life, right? Every single ad that you've ever heard preaches that message. 
You get me for maybe an hour once a week. You get everyone else's message preached to you constantly, and a lot of it's subliminal. And that was the message that I've absorbed, even in the midst of growing up in a good family and church and everything else. And so this didn't make sense. Me at the, the front and them at the back, me in pieces and them, them in a good place, that didn't make any sense. And that's what Solomon's wrestling with in this book. He is at the head of the pack. He has everything that the world could ever give. And he is utterly depressed. He is completely unsatisfied. You mean the weird ones, weird experiences? I don't know. I don't know. I still don't know exactly what was going on there. I do know that we had these kids coming out of the ghettos and getting saved. And whenever you've got that going on, Satan is at work. All right? We've got that going on to an extent here. Satan's at work. All right? So it just, I think it was just peaking in that situation. And I think God, just like he did with Job and Satan, using Satan to bring Job to him, that's what he was doing with me. He was just, Satan was on the leash. And he was achieving God's purposes because I came to finally surrender everything, everything I had left to Jesus. But I'll never forget that experience of being there. And as far as the world knew, I was at the top and yet I felt completely at the bottom. And so Solomon's wrestling with this and he's wrestling with it through this chapter. I just want us to look at Three things as we go through this passage, through this chapter this morning. So grab a Bible if you don't have one already. If you don't uh, own a Bible, take that one with you. That's our gift to you. So let's begin. Verse 1. Verse 1 and 2, he says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. Mark that, under the sun. And it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. That's the conclusion he's come to. Even when God gives you everything, like he has in his case, Solomon knows God's given him everything. Remember, God came to Solomon and said, what do you want? Solomon said, wisdom. God said, good answer. You can have everything else as well. God's given him everything he got, and yet he can't enjoy it. And Solomon says, God's made it that way. God's made it that way. And to Solomon, it's evil. It's a grievous evil. It's heavy on his heart. God's given him all all these things, but God hasn't given him the power to enjoy them. Someone else is going to do that. Someone else is going to enjoy them. God has given him it, but he's denied him satisfaction in it. And this is a universal experience, friends. Universal experience. The people who you see enjoying life to the full, living it up with every material possession they could want, are feeling this way. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by the the, uh, music videos, right? 
everyone feels this way. Everyone feels unsatisfied. Everyone feels like they could use some more. Everyone feels like the promise has failed. They were promised fulfillment and the good life, and it's just not what they're experiencing. That's exactly what Robin Williams said in interviews leading up to his death. And of course, it's obvious when you think about it, how else do we have the most affluent, most educated, most technologically, te technologically advanced generation that's ever lived in the history of the world and also the highest rates of suicide, the highest rates of depression? How is that possible? That makes no sense if what they're saying is true. Am I right? That makes no sense if what they're saying is true. But Solomon knows it. Solomon knows, knows it, and he understands it. It is a grievous evil. It's depressing. And so he's written out this book as sort of a semi-biography to try and illustrate why it is that we feel this way, even when we're as blessed as everyone in this room is. And he gives us a little example. He says, all right, let's, let's just imagine. Let me, let me illustrate this for you. And he imagines uh, an example which to Hebrews would be like the ultimate thing, all right? So he says, verse 3 to 6, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. What he's saying is this, to the Hebrew, for a Hebrew man to father many children and to live many years was the, the ultimate sign of God's blessing. And so he says, let's just imagine for a second that God lets you live 2,000 years, 1,000 years twice over, and have 100 children, right? So the Hebrews are thinking, okay, that's the most blessed man that's ever lived. Solomon says, it would be better off to be a stillborn child. That's a pretty big call. The literal translation is a miscarried child. I don't know if you've experienced miscarriage. I know we have on two occasions at least. And it is devastating. It's devastating when a little life doesn't make it to term. It's devastating if you have the Christian view, which is, by the way, absolutely backed up by every scientific test that we have, that that is a life, that's a human being, dead. And yet Solomon has the audacity to say, and the feeling to say, the emotion and the anger to say, you could live 2,000 years with 100 kids, and you'd be better off if you never made it out of the womb. Why? Because that little baby doesn't have to go through the pain of getting stuff and not being able to enjoy it. Doesn't go through the pain of having so much promise that doesn't deliver. The pain, the, just the, 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 the vacuum 
the constant vacuum inside of emptiness that nothing seems to be able to fill. It's just better off if you're never born. He says, no matter what, everyone ends up in the grave anyway, so why not skip the depressing part? That's a big call. This is what happens to men and women who get everything, come to the end of it, and realize that none of it brings happiness, none of it brings satisfaction, none of it brings fulfillment. That's why affluent, educated countries have a much higher suicide rate, a much higher rate of depression. That's why. Make you say things like that. You're better off dead. You're better off having never been born. And so he continues on. Do you want to keep going? I don't. But we will. This is God's word. It's good for us. Verse 7 to 9. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. It's a beautiful way of putting it. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have over uh, have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. What he's saying is this: everything you work for is for your mouth. Everything you work for is to satisfy you, and yet your your appetite is never satisfied. I mean, he's talking literally about food, right? Every day you work, a whole heap of what you work for, money-wise, gets spent on food. And guess what? What happens a couple of hours after you eat? You have to eat again. So you keep working and working and working for this money, and then you just keep eating it. Right? It would be a lot more stark if we actually ate the money. Then we'd really see how this thing works. You work to eat. You work to eat. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? It's a metaphor for everything that we have an appetite for. Everything that you have an appetite for. Think about the thing that you had a massive appetite for five years ago. Did you get it? How's that looking now? I remember when I got an iPhone 3. It was the best damn thing that ever happened to me. Now it's in landfill. That's only a few years ago. Every appetite that we have never gets satisfied. Never gets satisfied. We're on this treadmill of dissatisfaction, and there's nothing you can do about it. He's going to make that really clear in just a second. There's nothing you can do about it. And he says it's like chasing after the wind. That's a beautiful way of describing it. That's a great description. He's a poet. It's like chasing after the wind. That thing that you want so much that if you just get it would satisfy. And it's not just material possessions. I'm talking about the boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, perfect child. He turns out to be a professional golfer and a lawyer and a doctor, right? That, like, that thing that will finally give you peace is never going to give you peace. It's like chasing after the wind. 
when are you going to catch it? Solomon knows this. He wants us to know it too. Because it is, ironically, the only path to happiness and joy. And Solomon's got it right, and we need to know it, that all of this, all of this misery and dissatisfaction and, and dryness, all of it is God's design. This is not Satan. This is God. This is God's design from the beginning. From the moment Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and, and, and humanity falls, this is God's design for his creatures. Let's read verse 10 to 12. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. That's God. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man when he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What he's just said there is that God is sovereign over this process. Everything that has been named, that will be named, has been named. He he said it in another way that there is nothing new under the sun. God is sovereign. Naming in the Hebrew culture was a, a, a demonstration of authority and sovereignty. That's why Adam got to name the animals. And he says, God has named everything. God has set things up this way. God is sovereign over it. And there's nothing man can do about it. He can't dispute with someone stronger than him. The more words you throw at God in argument against this, the more vanity. The more vanity. The more meaningless. You can argue, you can try and get around it, you can try and heap up for yourself as much of this stuff as like if I get to if I get to a million bucks, that'll be it. I don't believe you, God. I think there is a gold pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I believe there is satisfaction somewhere under the sun. And God says, nah, there isn't. Solomon says, he's right, there isn't. I've done everything. I've got everything. There's no satisfaction under the sun. God made it that way. God made it that way because he's so, so gracious. He's so gracious. I don't know if you like poetry, but I do. And there's a poem by George Herbert called The Pulley, P-U-L-L-E-Y. And in that poem, he imagines God creating the universe. And he imagines a glass of blessings. And God pouring them into creation strength and beauty and awe and love. And then he says, before he got to the end of the glass, God made a stay. He stopped. And God said to himself, if I pour out everything into creation, then they will worship nature, not the God of nature. They'll worship the creation and not the creator. And that's exactly what God has done. Because he's gracious He has withheld from us satisfaction in life under the sun. He's withheld it from us. That thing you experience, 
Like every time you have an argument with your spouse and you realise they're not the perfect knight in shining armour that you were promised, that's not a defect, that's a design. Because husbands and wives make great helpers, they make terrible gods. They're not designed to complete you. Jerry Maguire is full of, full of it. They don't complete you and they never will. 38 years on, right? God has designed it that way. God has made it that way because he loves us and he knows. Solomon says, who knows what's good for man while he lives? Verse 12, answer, God does. We don't. We're like little kids, right? If you sit my three-year-old daughter in front of seven kilograms of lollies, she's going to eat them, all of them. If I'm loving, I'm going to withhold most of that. And it's exactly the same for us. God withholds from us that satisfaction that we so desire. Like everyone, I'm not talking about Christians, everyone on earth so desires to be completed, so desires to be satisfied, so much so that we've built up massive industries to try and make it happen. We promise everything and can never, ever deliver on it because God thwarts it every time. God has designed it that way. Are Are you with me? I mean, is this not the experience of every single person here? Even the richest, even the most educated, even the happiest. Because God loves us, He's designed our life to be dissatisfying. Now, the question is, how do we respond to that? When you finally get to the bottom, right, when you're finally sick and tired of being disappointed by everything you've been chasing after, what do you do? I tell you what most of us do. Distract ourselves from reality. Most of us distract ourselves with the very things that we're dissatisfied by. This is how capitalism can survive. This is how Apple can keep bringing out slightly better things that cost more money and people will keep buying them all. Right? Because we need, to, we need to distract ourselves. The iPhone 3 was disappointing, but now there's a 4 and a 5 and a 6. So one of them's got to be satisfying, one of them's got to be perfect. Same with wives and husbands. I'll divorce this one because she wasn't what I ordered. This one's going to be perfect. She's younger and younger. And it never delivers. So we distract ourselves. Distract ourselves. I'll tell you what it's like. How many people here belong to a gym? Duncan does, all right? Some of you do. You you walk into a gym. There's a whole line of treadmills. And every treadmill has a screen. It's either here or here. And you can just distract yourself as much as you like. With whatever show you like, 
This is why the iPod's so, expen- uh, so uh, popular as well, right? We use these devices to distract us from the sheer monotony of running on the spot and getting nowhere. Because that's what life is like. That's what life is like in our culture. It is monotony, day after day, working, toiling, making money, eating it up. That's what life is. And we wonder why we're depressed. But we distract ourselves enough and we won't realise that we're running on the spot. That's what we do. Distraction. Here's a better idea. When you get to the bottom and you realise nothing's delivering, and this happens frequently, right? So just grab whatever opportunity comes. When you get really disappointed that something didn't deliver on the promise, then you need to do what a man did in one of Jesus' parables. Do you remember the parable of the two sons? You know, you've got the, the good religious son, you've got the wayward son, the prodigal son. He lives in a, in a wealthy landowner's estate. He's got everything that he could ever need, but it's not enough. It's not satisfying. And so he asks his dad for his inheritance, which is the same thing as saying, I wish you were dead, give me what you owe me. And his dad gives it to him. And he goes away and he spends it up and lives it up. And he chases the wind. Chases the wind. Parties, girls, whatever. Whatever he could desire. He had a big wad of cash and he was going to spend it up and live it up, chasing the wind. And then he gets to the end of his money and he finds that he has nothing. And it's not just the money that he doesn't have. It's anything inside. He's tried to wring everything out of life and he has been wrung out by life. And while he's feeding the pigs one day, which would have been the most humiliating thing for a Hebrew man to do, he makes a decision not to get back up on his feet and start a business and start earning money so that he could get back to the good life. He didn't do that. That's what most people do. Yeah, I'm at the bottom now, but I can get back to the top, damn it. Because I'm pretty sure it was fun. And this time it'll be satisfying. And this time it'll last. But he doesn't do that. He gets up and he goes back to his father and he goes back with humility and he goes back empty and he goes back with arms open and he goes back hoping to get something. Maybe just a a job as a slave. And what does the father do? He sees this wayward son. He's been off chasing the wind for I don't know how long. He sees him a long way off and he sprints up to him. He wraps his arms around him, puts a ring on his finger, a cloak on his back, tells someone to kill the big cow because they're going to have a party to celebrate this boy coming home. He's finished chasing the wind. He's done chasing the wind. When I was 19, God was gracious enough to me to destroy my life so that I would come back to him. I had nothing else to go to. And if God is gracious to you, he will give you opportunities through your life, whether big tragic ones 
or just day-to-day disappointments, which are opportunities, which, are a, which is a call to you. A call to you to come to him. He's the only one who's satisfying. Jesus said, you remember? We looked at this in John. Come to me. Come to me. All who are thirsty. I'll give you water to drink. And you'll never be thirsty again. I'm springs of living water. I'm the bread of life. I'm the only thing that will satisfy you. I'm the only thing that will give your life meaning. I'm the only thing that will fill that hole. And so what God is wanting to say to us this morning is that whenever you get a taste of that disappointment, whenever you get a taste of that dissatisfaction, whenever you get a taste of that despair that will come, turn back to him. Turn back to him and he will come running up the road to greet you. He'll come running up the road to embrace you. He'll come running up the road to celebrate your return. And so now as we pray, I just want you to bow your heads and I want to pray that God would make prodigal sons out of each one of us because everyone here, to some degree, is off chasing the wind. Father, we do thank you for Solomon's words. He's so honest. We thank you that they are recorded for us in your word, that we can trust them. We thank you for the message this morning, a message of brutal honesty. Lord, you're not interested in just making us feel good. You're not interested in us feeling fulfilled as we chase the wind. You want us to feel the emptiness of that pursuit. So thank you for showing it to us in Solomon. Please reveal it to us in our own lives. Where are we chasing the wind? Where are we putting our trust in things that aren't trustworthy, that won't deliver? Where are we searching for water in broken wells? dried up wells. Please reveal that to us even now as we pray. I pray that the Spirit would reveal that to us in each of our hearts now. I want you to take a moment just to think about that now. Trust the Spirit to reveal to you where you're chasing the wind.
Father, please make us a community here of people with our lives orientated around you. Help us to be God-centered disciples of Jesus. Lord, forgive us when we stray, when we chase things that will never satisfy us, when we elevate things above you as if they could be more satisfying than you. Help us to pursue your good gifts in this life in the right way. That your good gifts to us of food and children and drink and husbands and wives and sex and money and sunshine, that they would all be vehicles for our praise of you. That we would love them, but that our praise and our worship and our adoration would go past them onto the giver of those good gifts. Make us a radical, worshipping community. And now as we come to share the Lord's Supper together, Father, I pray that you would bless us, that you would strengthen us as we eat and drink, that you would remind us of all your promises in the Lord Jesus, that none of them fail, that they are not like the promises of ad men, they are not like the promises of this world. Every promise you've made has its yes and its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. So as we Remember his death on our behalf and his resurrection. We pray that you would strengthen us. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.